0: Before I start this week's episode of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, just the usual note of thanks to Sora Shimazaki at Pexels who took the photograph which adorns the cover art. Let's crack on. And welcome to episode 84 of the Financial Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm Chris Kirkbride. It has been one heck of a week for financial crime news this week. There's just so much. It's just a massive news, really, over all aspects of financial crime. So let's just get on with it. We'll start with sanctions. This week's sanctions news starts in the European Union, where first the European Commission is believed to be keen to investigate the use being made Russian oil in refineries in Bulgaria. Bulgaria is exempt from the agreed EU sanctions on Russian oil to a degree following its negotiation of that exemption last year. However, it's a growing source of frustration in the bloc that almost 1 billion euros in oil has flushed through the country since the ban was agreed. Interesting to see where this goes, especially if Bulgarian MPs also become interested in the role the country is playing to support the Russian invasion. The second story is an update on the 12th round of sanctions against Russia. It was believed that the latest sanctions would be discussed by individual sovereign nations this week, because, of course, they have to be agreed. The agreement would then hopefully follow in subsequent weeks. However, some members are unwilling to sever ties further, especially to the degree which is being expected in the 12th round. The merry-go-round, I suppose, continues. Now the 12th round will focus on strengthening the oil cap, imposing sanctions on Russian diamond importation. It will look to deal more aggressively with third-country companies supporting sanctions evasion – we've seen a lot of that in recent months across the globe looking particularly at third countries which are seeking to help Russia evade sanctions there will also be a focus on the imposition on restrictions or the imposition of restrictions on individuals including apparently the guardian was reporting the son of former president dmitry medvedev interesting again the 12th round of sanctions hasn't been agreed yet but It's on the precipice of agreement. The third story out of the EU is that it's planning further sanctions against Iran following its support for Hamas. In the US, Janet Yellen, the US Treasury Secretary, has urged China to do more to prevent its economy being used as a means by which Russia is able to evade sanctions imposed by the US and others. It's long been thought that China had adopted a generous attitude towards Russia and its foreign policy activities. The urging by Yellen in a meeting with Chinese Deputy Prime Minister He Feng, is the latest in a series of attempts to get China to do more. I suspect they might have to be encouraged a few more times yet, though this does raise the broader point about whether sanctions are effective or not, especially where there is such a major economic powerhouse with a liberal approach to the particular sanctioned nation. It also raises the trickier point about whether the US dare use anything more than soft power and influence to attempt to convince China and any other country in a similar position, for that matter, to act consistently with it and its allies. We'll see where this one goes, but I suspect for now it'll probably go nowhere, really. On the linked theme of violating Russian sanctions, the US Department of the Treasury, Office of Foreign Assets Control, has sent warning notices to ship management companies in around 30 countries requesting information about 100 vessels which it suspects of violating Western sanctions on Russian oil. Russian oil, of course, is subject to a price cap imposed by a number of countries as well as the European Union. In coordinated action, that's what the price gap was anyway to see that Russia cannot profit from its export of oil and use the funds in its continued aggression in Ukraine. The link to the OFAC press release is in the podcast description. Now I suppose it's not the final piece there's another couple of bits that I wanted to think I wanted to mention, but there's another bit from the US concerning sanctions and it's the extension of the sanctions waiver against Iran, which allows Iraq, to buy electricity from its heavily sanctioned neighbour. Everybody needs good neighbours. Finally, on news from the US, a couple of stories first. A number of agencies have issued a jointly produced report on the impact which the Magnitsky-style sanctions have had on the perpetrators of human rights abuse and corruption. The report by, amongst others, Human Rights First, Redress and Open Society Foundations, the Raoul Wallenberg Centre for Human Rights and the Pan-American Development Foundation, which was released on Friday, the report itself detailing the impact in several countries that Magnitsky-style sanctions have had on perpetrators of human rights abuses. In the Human Rights First press release, which announced the publication, it provides Magnitsky sanctions have proven to be powerful. In some cases, they have deterred human rights abuses and spurred the removal of corrupt officials. They are particularly potent when governments use these sanctions against abusive actors in countries where they have strong ties. The US and other governments must use these tools without fear or favour to hold perpetrators of human rights abuses and corruption accountable. The report's launch will be accompanied by a virtual discussion on Monday, November 20th at 10am EST. Link both to the report and the details of the launch event can be found in the podcast description. Secondly, the US State Department has issued sanctions on two individuals and 12 entities in the Western Balkans. All of the following targets are designated pursuant to Executive Order 14024, which authorises sanctions with respect to specified harmful foreign activities of the government of the Russian Federation. The Department of State is designating particular individuals pursuant to Section 1A2F for engaging in activities that undermine the peace, security, political stability, or territorial integrity of Ukraine. Essentially, those sanctions are designed to strike at the heart of the corrupt and malign intent of Russia in that region. link to the press release is in the podcast description. Now, the sanctions news this week turns to the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation, which is in the United Kingdom. First, OFSI has amended General Licence 1552576 relating to London Court of Arbitration arbitration costs. The amendment removes the Annex 1 schedule of arbitration costs and changes the definition of arbitration costs to reflect the relevant schedule of costs for LCIA arbitration. Link to the notice and updated list of licenses is in the podcast description. Ofsi has also issued a new general license to facilitate the delivery of humanitarian aid to Israel and the occupied Palestinian territories. The link to the General Licence 3749168 is in the podcast description. Six names have also been added to the counterterrorism international financial sanctions regime and they are now subject to an asset freeze. The individuals concerned are sanctioned for their links to Hamas. This action was coordinated with the US Office of Foreign Assets Control. The notice, which is published by OFSEA in the UK, together with the updated list of individuals, entities and ships subject to sanctions as well as the OFAC press release can be found in the podcast description. Now on the subject of coordinated action and to mark the one year anniversary of the OFAC OFSEA Enhanced Partnership, both OFSEA and OFAC have published a joint blog post detailing the first year of the Enhanced Partnership which was launched in October 2022. The link to it, if you want to read it, is in the podcast description. Another two names have been amended under the Russia Financial Sanctions Regime and the Iran Nuclear Financial Sanctions Regime. Links to those notices again in the podcast description. The ISIL Daesh and Al-Qaeda regime has also been amended, with the four individual entries amended remaining subject to an asset freeze again, Link to that notice in the podcast description. Now, the final sanctions news this week. There are two bits just to finish things off beautifully. First, Section 214 of the Economic Crime and Corporate Transparency Act 2023 has been brought into force by a statutory instrument. This happened on the 15th of November. The provision is on sanctions enforcement and monetary penalties and makes amendment to the Sanctions and Anti Money Laundering Act 2018. The same statutory instrument also provides the commencement date of a range of other provisions of the 2023 Act, and those commence on the 15th of January, 2024. The link to the relevant section of the 2023 Act, as well as the statutory enactment, that is, by statutory instrument, can be found in the podcast description. And finally and definitely finally this is the last piece of financial sanctions news this week. It's from the UK and it is the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, the FCDO and the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation which have issued joint guidance on ownership and control relating to public officials and control uh, public officials in UK sanctions regimes. The link to it is in the podcast description. That was exhausting. told you there was a lot of financial sanctions news. Now, that's it for the financial sanctions news this week, and I think that's enough for anybody. But we'll now turn our attention to fraud news. Now, we'll start with an old friend. For old times' sake, this week's fraud news starts with some COVID-19 pandemic fraud in the US. The US continues to work hard, and seemingly harder in some ways than the UK, to bring those liable to account and to recover funds fraudulently taken from the public purse. This time, three Miami residents have been charged with conspiracy to commit wire fraud, wire fraud, conspiracy to commit money laundering, and money laundering in connection with a scheme to obtain fraudulent loans under the Paycheck Protection Programme, the PPP as it's known. In total, loans in excess of fourteen point one four million. dollars, were paid to accounts controlled by the alleged co-conspirators. The link to the US Department of Justice press release is in the podcast description. Now, sticking with the subject of COVID fraud and the US, the Government Accountability Office, the GAO, has published the outcomes of its investigation into the fraud scheme and the federal response efforts to COVID-19. The GAO found... That's quotes. The Department of Justice has brought federal fraud-related charges against at least 2,191 individuals or entities in cases involving federal COVID-19 relief programs, consumer scams, and other types of fraud as of June 30th, 2023. Based on the GAO's analysis of the cases announced in the DOJ press releases. At least 1,525 entities or individuals are facing fraud related charges. Of these, they were found guilty or liable to some degree. Courts have ordered individuals to pay restitution ranging up to over 60 million US dollars and serve prison terms up to 10 years or more. The GAO's analysis of fraud schemes highlights the resulting fraud losses and impacts on taxpayers agency reputation, federal, federal program goals, and health and safety. Agencies can use information about schemes to improve their fraud risk management efforts. The link to the GAO press release is in the podcast description. Over to the UK now, where there are a host of stories to take away what would otherwise be manifest boredom. First, the Financial Conduct Authority has prohibited Mark Anthony Jensen from performing any function in relation to any regulated activity carried on by any authorised person, exempt person or exempt professional firm. The basis for the prohibition is that Jensen pleaded guilty to seven counts of fraud by false representation contrary to sections 1 and 2 of the Fraud Act 2006. He received, for his troubles, a prison sentence of five years and four months. Jensen is, quotes not a fit and proper person to perform any functions in relation to any regulated activity carried on by any authorised person, exempt person or exempt professional firm. Link to the press, uh, well, it's not the press release, it's the Financial Conduct Authority's final notice is in the podcast description. The second UK fraud story from the Uh, relates to the issuance by the Royal Mail of new stamps. Since August 2022, only stamps with a barcode are accepted as legit. But the Royal Mail has set up a scheme whereby old stamps, those who'd accumulated old stamps, could swap these old stamps for new ones. Well, necessity being the mother of invention and all that, it would appear customers have been submitting stamps under the scheme that are either used Or fake, and not as contended for by the customer. This is certainly something which the Royal Mail has taken a dim view of, and it has warned customers that their actions are a potential criminal offence under the Fraud Act. May stop a few people, but not everyone. Number three, well, The third fraud story from the UK relates to the Public Sector Fraud Authority which started operations in August 2022 and has just published its first annual report. There's an awful lot of backpatting in the report but a couple of highlights include first £311 million in audited counter-fraud benefits have been delivered, and secondly, that the authority has indicated its use of cutting-edge analytics and technology has been utilised to identify and prevent fraud, which includes £140 million of potentially fraudulent payments under the Bounce Back Loans scheme. Hooray! That's the COVID-19 scheme which was designed to help firms get back on their feet after the lockdowns. Now, the PSFA, the Public Sector Fraud Authority, may well be pleased with itself there, but the amounts are a drop in the ocean when the true scale of the fraud, particularly COVID-19 fraud, is measured in billions, not millions. Anyway, if you're bored, the link to the report is in the podcast description. Fourth bit of news is from the City of London Police, which has marked International Fraud Awareness Week by celebrating, which is their word, not mine, its 2023 achievements. These are a, quotes, fraudster likened to The Wolf of Wall Street, a film I have still not seen, but I've been encouraged by several people to watch, who's been jailed for 14 years, a hacker being convicted of stealing unreleased Ed Sheeran music. There you go, takes all sorts and all forms of tastes. And an organised crime group, which has been jailed for more than 22 years. The other piece of news from the City of London Police is the arrest of 10 people in relation to a commercial insurance fraud scheme. A link to both press releases can be found in the podcast description. The fifth story from the UK, I told you there's a lot of them, is from the serious fraud office, the SFO, which has started to move things in relation to the collapse of a law firm, that's Axiom Ince. The firm was closed by the... Solicitor's Regulator, which is the Solicitor's Regulation Authority, when it was discovered that £66 million in client money was absent from the account and, it is believed, had been dissipated. This week saw the arrest of seven individuals and searches conducted across nine sites. it uh, be interesting to follow this one, see how it unravels. There might well be civil as well as criminal action here. If you want to see the latest from the SFO, then the press release is in the podcast description. And finally, the sixth and hopefully final story this week from the UK, although not the final story in this mammoth podcast, is again from the SFO, the Serious Fraud Office, and it's a bit of good news with the announcement of the conviction of William Osmond, a solicitor. Quotes who disclosed confidential details about an investigation and forged a legal document in an attempt to mislead investigators. Osmond, co-founder of a London-based commercial and property law firm Osmond and Osmond Solicitors Limited, is the first ever solicitor the SFO has prosecuted with tipping off a client. This is an offence under section 333A of the Proceeds of Crime Act 2002. As the Press release goes on. Solicitors are legally obliged not to share details of money laundering investigations into their clients. Osmond was also the acting money laundering reporting officer, which is a requirement that firms have, meaning he was expected to report any suspicions of money laundering to the authorities. Osmond will be sentenced on the 30th of November 2023. Link to the SFO press release is in the podcast description. This week's roundup of fraud news brings work from the Basel Committee. uh, Well, this week's roundup, end of the roundup of fraud news, brings work from the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision, which has published a discussion paper on digital fraud. Quotes. The paper explores the supervisory and financial stability implications of digital fraud in banking, including existing data availability and measures to mitigate such risks. Technological banking advancements can provide both benefits and present risks to bank soundness and financial stability. One such example is digital fraud. Criminals are exploiting digitalization to commit online fraud on a greater scale and scope than previously fraud risks have also evolved in response to the Covid-19 pandemic. Have they ever? The questions with which the discussion is concerned are, first, what is digital fraud? What are its main defining features? How does digital fraud affect banks and how should policymakers think about it? Secondly, what are the supervisory and financial stability implications? How are supervision and financial stability affected by digital fraud? Why is digital fraud of relevance to the committee and its mandate? What empirical data are available to assess its magnitude and prevalence? Thirdly, what is being done to mitigate digital fraud risks within the banking sector? What initiatives have been pursued or are planned at the domestic, regional and global level? The Basel Committee on Banking Supervision would like to hear from you by the 16th of February 2024, and you can find the link to the press release and the report or the discussion paper itself in the podcast description. That's it for the fraud news. Now we move on to look at the money laundering news, and it is, frankly, slim pickings on the money laundering front this week – but the National Crime Agency, the UK's Financial Intelligence Unit, has published its SARS, SARS of course being Suspicious Activity Reports, SARS reporter booklet for November 2023. With case studies on fraud and money laundering, as well as a focus on vulnerable persons, it's compulsory reading, so it's linked in the podcast description. In France, the Cour de Cassation, has confirmed the guilt of UBS in relation to its operation of banking services leading to money laundering, but ordered a new trial to determine the appropriate level of fine. The fine was originally set at €1.8 billion, but the court has said that the new trial will look again at the fine. The next money laundering story this week is a reminder why cryptocurrency and its potential as a vehicle for money laundering have been on the policy agendas of a number of countries in recent months and years, with news of the arrest of three individuals for the alleged participation quotes in a complex scheme to steal over $10 million from nearly a dozen US banks and financial institutions, which they converted into cryptocurrency and moved to foreign cryptocurrency exchanges. Link to the press release is in the podcast description. The final money laundering story this week is from the Financial Action Task Force, the FATF, which this week released amendments to Quotes Recommendation 8 and its interpretive note to address the misapplication and misinterpretation of Recommendation 8 that had led countries to apply disproportionate measures on non-profit organisations, NPOs. The revised Recommendation 8 and its interpretive note will require countries to protect NPOs from terrorist financing, abuse through the risk-based implementation of strengthened measures. The link to the press release, which links to the FATF recommendations and the Best Practices paper on combating the terrorist financing abuse of non-profit organisations, can be found in the podcast description. Now to bribery and corruption news. and This week's bribery and anti-corruption news starts in China, where the former chairman of China Citic Bank, has been found guilty of bribery and corruption and sentenced to life imprisonment sun deshan is understood to have received property with an estimated value of 980 million yuan that's 134 million dollars presumably us dollars over 16 years now to a story which has been picking up a lot of traction recently and it's the scale of alleged bribes either paid to or elicited by i suppose public officials in the us been a lot of stories seems to be endemic at the moment because i've reported on a number of stories in recent weeks of bribes being paid to public officials it's not difficult to understand the motivation i suppose for this for those who seek to influence those in public office by illegal activity it's it's quite prevalent they've been the stories have really been picking up First, charges against three former executives of a San Francisco-based construction company who are alleged to have paid bribes to expedite and issue building plan permits and approve building inspections. The activity is alleged to go back around 20 years to 2023. Secondly, that a former civilian employee of the Navy who also owned a defence contractor has been indicted for alleged bribery. Philip Flores, owner of in Telepeak Solutions, bribed James Soriano, the former employee, with free dinners at San Diego restaurants including Demigici Cucina, the University Club and Blue Waterhouse Boat and uh, Boathouse Grill, and Ruth's Chris in Virginia, as well as tickets to the 2018 World Series and the 2019 Super Bowl. In return, Soriano allowed Flores to draft procurement documents for various contracts, including contracts for which Flores and IntelliPeak ostensibly were in competition with others. Soriano also steered millions of dollars in contracts to IntelliPeak that Flores subcontracted to others, including contractors ineligible to receive the contracts third story is a criminal defence attorney who has pleaded guilty to charges of, quotes, conspiracy, bribery, paying illegal compensation to a court employee and making material false statements to law enforcement to conceal his crimes. The link to the Department of Justice press releases from both cases can be found in the podcast description. The final piece of bribery news this week is from Trace, the organisation committed to anti-bribery and anti-corruption. It has published its bribery risk matrix for 2023. Those countries with the highest risk of bribery are North Korea, Turkmenistan, Syria, Equatorial Guinea and Yemen. While the good guys are once more Norway, New Zealand, Switzerland, Sweden and Denmark. A link to the report is in the podcast description. Now, a bit of market abuse news. The US Securities and Exchange Commission has published its enforcement results for the financial year 2023, indicating that it quote, "filed 784 total enforcement actions in fiscal year 2023, a 3% increase over fiscal year 2022, including 501 original or standalone enforcement actions, an 8% increase over the prior fiscal year." The SEC also filed 162 follow on administrative proceedings seeking to bar or suspend individuals from certain functions in the securities markets based on criminal convictions, civil injunctions, or other orders, and 121 actions against issuers who were allegedly delinquent. Now, there's a word you don't often hear nowadays delinquent in making required filings with the Securities and Exchange Commission. In fiscal year 2023, the SEC obtained orders for $4.949 billion in financial remedies, the second highest amount in SEC history, after the record-setting financial remedies ordered in fiscal year 2022. Now, either the amounts levied are going up or behaviour is getting much worse, one or the other. The financial remedies comprised... billion in disgorgement and prejudgment interest and 1.580 billion in civil penalties. Both the disgorgement and civil penalties orders were the second highest amounts on record. The SEC also obtained orders barring 133 individuals from serving as officers and directors of public companies, the highest number of officer and director bars obtained in a decade. In addition, the SEC distributed 930 million to harmed investors in the fiscal year 2023, making the second consecutive year with more than 900 million in distributions. The link to the full report is in the podcast description. Now, before we look at this week's cyber attack news, just a bit of general financial news which is worth bringing to your attention. First of all, Metrobank in the UK, it's one of these challenger banks, has issued a statement in which it confirmed that the Financial Conduct Authority had placed the bank on its watch list. As the statement issued by Metrobank provides, quotes the group received confirmation of its position on the FCA's watch list for financial crime compliance, primarily in relation to the ongoing management of financial crime risk within the group's backbook as well as specific concerns over the effectiveness of financial crime controls over the group's online account provisions. The group continues to engage, update and cooperate fully with the FCA on these matters, and the FCA's inquiries remain ongoing. The outcome and timing of these matters is inherently uncertain, and based on the facts currently known, it's not possible to predict the outcome or reliably reliably estimate any financial impact. The link to Metrobank's financial statement, which is in the context of its issue to raise funds, is in the podcast description. And finally, on other financial crime news this week, there's a blog post worth reading on the Transparency International website, which highlights the role which British overseas territories, or bots, have in fighting economic crime. The inspiration for the post is the meeting this week between the UK government and senior government Figures from BOTS for the second Joint Ministerial Council, the JMC. This is the second one this year. The post reflects on new polling from the UK Anti-Corruption Coalition, which indicates that the great British public, in their wisdom, would like the British government to do more to align the work of BOTS more strongly with the fight against economic crime. The post, as well as the fo- as well as the BOTS focus. Also provides or reminds us of problems closer to the UK and elsewhere in the globe. Worth a read with a good smattering of links throughout it, so I've linked the blog post in the podcast description. Now, we end this week's Financial Crime Weekly podcast with a mammoth roundup of cyber attack news, and we'll start in Australia where a cyberattack has affected several sea ports operated by DP World Australia. Reports of container ships being held offshore and threats to Christmas have variously appeared in the press following the announcement. It's understood that the company continues to deal with the impact of the event, but by the middle of the week, some of its services were back online. As reported last week, ChatGPT was offline because of a cyber-attack affecting the AI chatbot, which is operated by OpenAI. Well, responsibility for that attack has been claimed by a group called Anonymous Sudan. The attack was believed to have been motivated by the platform's perceived bias towards Israel and against Palestine. In China, the Industrial and Commercial Bank of China, the ICBC, which is the world's biggest lender, has had a significant cyber attack which affected its business to such a degree that it disrupted US Treasury markets and traders had to carry out transactions using USB sticks. Now, there's a blast from the past. Good to see some old school technology still knocking about in the high powered world of international finance. Anyway, the update of the story is that the hacker announced that the ransom had been paid in the case, at least according to a report from Reuters. Nothing official from the bank. In the US, there has been a cyber attack on the North Carolina Central University, which caused the cancellation of some online classes this week. At this stage, it is not believed that personal information has been compromised, but this might change. The The other notable story from the US this week comes in the form of another attack on casinos, with reports that MGM Resorts has once again had some of its systems shut down because of a cyber attack. Now this next story from the U.S. is really interesting and I must admit I had to read it twice because I couldn't quite believe what I was reading. But anyway, it's a really interesting story from the Black Cat slash APLHV ransomware group and how some gangs may be shifting their strategies to call out the companies that are the victims of their attack. The report is that the Black Cat group has filed a complaint with the Securities and Exchange Commission concerning one of its alleged victims, which, it suggested, has not complied with the SEC's four-day cyber-attack disclosure rule. Nothing official from the victim company, which is alleged to be at the centre of the non-disclosure, nor from the SEC, but that was really interesting. They, the cyber-attacker, has filed the complaint with the SEC. There you go. Gotta stay one step ahead, I suppose. In Germany, Secretary-General of NATO Jens Stoltenberg addressed the first annual NATO Cyber Defence Conference. At the conference he stressed the importance of collaboration between senior allied political, military and technical decision-makers in order to coordinate collective defence in cyberspace. We've reported on increasing concern among NATO membership about the cyber threat from rogue and hostile nation-states, and even touched on whether a cyber-attack on a NATO member state would trigger the mutual assistance obligations under the treaty. These comments represent a further effort to take the issue of the cyber threat more seriously by those who are signed up to the treaty. Now, the National Cyber Security Centre in the United Kingdom has published its annual review for 2023. The report urges more work on the shifting threat which is faced by the UK from a cyber attack on its critical infrastructure. Critical infrastructure includes the provision of safe drinking water, electricity, communications, its transport and financial networks and internet connectivity. This is not the first time which a threat to where a threat to critical infrastructure in the UK has been identified in episode 76 of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. We looked at the call for evidence from the House of Commons Science and Technology Committee's report on the cyber resilience of the United Kingdom's critical national infrastructure. This is clearly something which has come to the minds of policymakers and others. However, I can't help but worry that things are all going a little bit too slowly. The impact which a cyber attack can have on critical infrastructure has been no more obvious than in Ukraine, where persistent cyber attacks on the power network have compromised its ability to function. Many essential services, in fact, as memory serves, we've also seen similar things in Israel as well. When it comes to things like irrigation. Now, on that point, the national cyber security, um, the national cybersecurity center report also identifies that over the last 12 months, its quotes observed the emergence of a new class of cyber adversary in the form of state-aligned actors who are often sympathetic to Russia's further invasion of Ukraine and are ideologically, rather than financially, motivated. This, frankly, can come as no surprise to anyone who's followed this podcast and its weekly review of the cyber attacks perpetrated across the last year. Anyway, The link to the National Cyber Security Centre press release and the report, the annual report, can be found in the podcast description. In a related story, the Australian Cyber Security Centre has echoed this concern about state-sponsored or state-aligned cyber attacks this week, and the Danish authorities have identified Russian hackers, though it's unclear whether they are allied to the state – which made a coordinated attack on 22 companies, each of which was connected in some way with the Danish energy sector, with the attack being described as, quotes, the largest cyber attack against Danish critical infrastructure. seems as though the UK is not the only country which should be paying close attention to the risks associated with cyber attacks on critical infrastructure. And finally this week... A bit of horizon scanning from the British Continuity Institute, the BCI, and Google Cloud. First, BCI has published its BCI horizon scan report for 2023, which has highlighted that cyber attacks and extreme weather events represent the most significant risk issues uh, which firms might face as they look towards 2024. A depressing look to the new year. If you want to see all of the top 10 risks, then there's a link to the press release from the BCI, which links to the report in the podcast description. Google Cloud has also published its Cybersecurity Forecast 2024 report. It predicts that in a fairly unsurprising turn of events, that generative artificial intelligence and large language models will be utilized by cyber criminals over the coming weeks, months and years to produce more effective cyber attacks in 2024. Link to that equally depressing report is in the podcast description. Is it too early for a Negroni? Probably. Probably. That's it for this week's epic edition of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. If you want to do so, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll hear from me All again next week with the usual roundup of all things financial crime. Have a great week, everyone.